Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries and this is Bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is renowned author and essayist Pico Iyer, the author of over 15 books, the most recent of which is Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, published by our friends at Vintage Books. Pico, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. It's really good to talk to you. Yeah, and it's an honor to have you here. Um, The first question I would like to ask you is one that I'm asking every author I've been interviewing over these past few weeks, and it is a two-part question. The first part is, how are you, Pico, doing in this world that is largely shut down because of COVID-19, the coronavirus? And two, how are you approaching the marketing of your book at this time? I'm feeling a little embarrassed right now because I'm in my little apartment in Japan that's setting for autumn light and really things are very much as they always are. The cherry blossoms are flowering over all the streams and paths and the nightingales are teaching their young to sing. Um, The old folks are walking around the neighborhood or taking their dogs for a walk. And there have been a few more restrictions uh, in the last few days and people are a little worried that the virus is coming closer to our cities. But to an extraordinary extent, things are proceeding very much as normal. We are allowed to do almost all the things we would um, otherwise do. And of course, as a writer, I practice social distancing for a living. In other words, I, I spend most of my days just sitting at my desk and taking walks around the neighborhood and reading. And so that really is the same now as a year ago, or I hope a year from now. Uh, I am going to be flying across the Pacific um, to California tomorrow uh, to visit my 88-year-old mother who's been in and out of the hospital, and I feel I ought to be with her. So I'm not sure what awaits me in California, but right now um, it's a beautiful, bright, blue spring morning here in in Japan and uh, kids are going to school and people are waiting for the local bus and uh, others are gathering in in the park for picnics. Um, In terms of marketing, given that my book is a paperback and I did actually a very extensive tour last year, um, as you said, the vintage books are your friends and they're my friends and I've been with them for more than 30 years and I've been so touched uh, at all the people in the publishers um, working so hard and heroically in these very difficult circumstances. So, um, I, you know, I think my book isn't necessarily the first thing people need at this time, but uh, I'm very grateful to my publishers for working so hard. And actually, after we finish um, our call, I'm going to be sending the drafts for my next two books to that same publisher, because uh, this strange moment where I haven't been traveling around has given me a chance to uh, write much more than I expected and get my next two books done. Ah, excellent. Thank you so much, Pico. And I do want to ask you about your new book, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells. This book opens upon a phone conversation between you and your wife, and her father is in the hospital. He is 91 years old, and he is not well. He is so old, your wife says, that the doctors almost do not care how not well he is. Uh, Can you set this scene up further, and by way, set the book up further for our listeners? Um, I was I was in Key West, Florida at that time, not a million miles from Raleigh, for a literary seminar. And my my wife um, lives near Kyoto, Japan, and that's where her father was in in the hospital. So suddenly, in the middle of the night, really, I got this call from my wife. My my father-in-law had been at the local shrine the previous week and pretty healthy, um, but suddenly there he was in the hospital, and she was worried that what was going to happen, and. Um, 
uh, and I felt terrible because I was stuck in Florida with these obligations and I couldn't get back uh, for a few days. And I should probably tell your audience, since it's on the first page of the book, that three days later I got another call and um, my wife said that her father had passed away. And I quickly flew back to Japan. And I think what was interesting to me, among other things, is of course the emotions that follow upon a death are pretty much the same everywhere in Japan, North Carolina. It's always about grief and loss. But in Japan, they have a very specific way of responding to things. Um, uh, the, the body is very quickly cremated, and then the bones are brought out, and all the families gathers off with chopsticks, often with gratitude and delight, and they pick out bones um, to take home to put on the family altar. And uh, then one week later and seven weeks later and one year later, a priest comes and chants. And one reason I stress all this is that I think most of us, when we go through a death close to us, we're in a state of confusion and loss. What do we do? We've got all this grief. How does it come out? And Japan, because it's been sort of an expert at living with suffering for 1400 years, tells you exactly what to do and what marks to hit and where to be at specific times right after death. And I think that's quite a sensible way of dealing with that initial turbulence. Uh, in fact, when somebody dies, uh, they keep the body there for 24 hours, suitably preserved and protected. And people have, the family members have dinner next to the body, they serve the dead body, um, his favorite kind of beer and his favorite kind of sushi or whatever it might be, and they talk to the dead body, which of course was startling to me coming from the West. What was more startling was that um, after the person is completely dead and buried and gone, for the Japanese, he's still there. And so right now, this morning, with seven years after that death, my wife got up very early. She made her father's favorite cup of tea. She prepared some of his favorite snacks and she put them on the household altar in our little Western style flat for her seven years dead father. Um, and it's an interesting thing that the dead here are not seen as having disappeared forever. It's almost as if they're in the next room. You can't quite contact them physically but you talk to them you think about them my wife when she has a free day will take three four trains and a bus to make a two-hour trip to what in japan is called a city of tomorrow which is the graveyard and there she'll fill in her departed father and her departed grandmother on all the latest family news um and so coming as i say from the united states and england this is such an interesting response to death Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pico. And upon your landing in Japan, uh, when you return, there's a focus on ping pong, and actually there's much focus on ping pong in this book. Um, can you speak to us about the importance of ping pong to this story, Autumn Light? <laughs> well, the, the book is about um, living with mortality and living with uncertainty, which unfortunately is something very much on almost everybody's mind right now. Mm. But it's, it's, it's a fact of life. And the book is called Autumn Light because in Japan, in the autumn, the skies are brilliantly blue, cloudless, as warm as in Raleigh, or maybe warmer even. But it's, it, the leaves are all turning gold and red and, and scarlet. And it's this combination of very bright sunshine and a sense of things passing. Mm. And so my book is about that, that the fact that in Japan they say life is 
a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. In other words, every life ends in death, every meeting ends in a separation, but that's not a reason necessarily to be sad. It's more a reason to wake up to the joy and beauty around us right now and, and actually to find um, joy in this moment. So, set, so the book is uh, about, as I say, it begins with my um, father-in-law's death, and then my, as soon as he died, my mother-in-law, who was 86, uh, got very sick and confused, of course, having lost her husband of 60 years, and we didn't know if she was going to survive. So the book is about living very close to death. And I thought, if you're going to deal with a very serious, grave topic like that, you need a counterpoint, especially if it's a book about joy, not just about grief. And so I, as you found, and as you describe, I go back and forth between looking after my mother-in-law and don't not knowing if she'll make it to the next day or the next week, and going every day to my local uh, health club to play ping pong with my mostly elderly neighbors in their 70s and 80s. So the ping pong is a way of suggesting even as life is rolling on, people are passing away, the leaves are falling, winter is approaching, there's still this sense of merriment and vitality. One of the things that always hits me at the ping pong club, of course, is these, these friends of mine are quite old. They're grandparents or great-grandparents, but put them behind a ping-pong table and their vitality itself, they're full of spark and energy and fun. They jump around and dance like little kids when they win a point. Every now and then a teenage hotshot will show up at the club and one of the 80-year-olds will defeat the 18-year-old, which reminds us that you know, life doesn't move in a straight line and that even autumn or old age has certain strengths that spring and teenage years might um, envy. And so um, the ping pong serves as a reminder of how daily life continues. And also it's about resilience because as I got to know my neighbors who play ping pong, I started making calculations and I thought, well, wait a minute, if they're 80 right now, that means they were born in the 1930s. And that means that when they were children, there were five years of terrible warfare two atomic bombs dropped on their country, seven years of harrowing occupation in which many Japanese were reduced to eating insects and blades of grass. And then these friends that I played ping pong with joined Sony and Mitsubishi and Toyota and helped to create what we used to call the Japanese economic miracle, the wonderful reconstruction of their country. And so they'd seen a lot of history. They'd seen a huge amount of suffering, even as little children. And here they are, dancing around, so delighted to play ping pong, gathering night after night. They'll play four hours a day, often. Uh, and so it's a real place of hope in the middle of the reality of all of us getting older. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Pico Iyer. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One 
fund that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Pico Iyer, author of Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, published by our friends at Vintage Books. Pico, you mentioned that for much of the year, your job forces you out on the road, and your job is reporting on foreign conflicts and globalism on a human scale. Can you tell us about this job and give us some examples of recent stories you have reported on? Yes, so I've been um, a journalist for 37 years now. I began with Time Magazine in New York, uh, writing uh, on world affairs, but staying in New York. And then um, quite a long time ago, I moved to Japan, but I still continue um, my job from here. And I think my goal is always to see the places that we hear a lot about that we don't know so much about. And I sometimes feel in this age of information, A few of us may know less about the rest of the world than ever before. So I go to Iran or North Korea or Yemen or Kashmir or Cuba just to try to find, I suppose, a human reality. Because if uh, one of us in the U.S. hears the name Iran or North Korea right now, we probably know something about the government and the dictatorships there and something about uh, the economy and maybe even something about the nuclear policy. But we know so little about day-to-day life. And I've been a traveler all my life, and I always feel that humans are in some ways wiser than our governments, and we can see past the divisions. Governments always think about us versus them, but humans are much more inclined to find the common ground. And so, for example, um, I had written articles for Time magazine on Iran, and I once published a whole 354-page novel about Iran set in partly in Iran, though I'd never been there. And not so long ago, I went there, and even though I'd researched it and written about it for so long, it was eye-opening. My, as soon as I arrived in, uh, in Iran, uh, my guide was waiting for me at the airport. He spoke better English than I did because he'd been educated at a boarding school near London. He start, The first thing he said as we were driving towards the hotel was um, he was asking me about Mr. Bean and John Stewart. Mm-hmm. We arrived at the hotel, which is a beautiful hotel um, constructed before the revolution with Ave Maria being piped through the lobby. And there was a mosque in the lobby, but right next to the mosque there were these glittery French fashion stores. Uh, I went up to my room in the hotel and I thought, this is my first chance to enjoy Iranian TV. So I turned on the TV and there was Piers Morgan on CNN. Um, And I was so surprised by this, I thought, oh, I need to tell this to my friends back in California. So I went online and lo and behold, the internet connection in in, uh, Mashhad, Iran, was much faster than the one in Santa Barbara, California. So I'd been there in Iran for one hour and I realized how little I knew about it, even though I follow it from afar. And so I try to, um, as I say, to go those, to those places that are just names or abstractions to us and fill out even in a tiny way the human reality. North Korea is another example because it's so sealed. We only hear about its very, very cruel dictator. And although a tourist or a visitor isn't allowed to see very much, it's fascinating to go there and to see the people with their cell phones. And I remember in our little group of foreigners, we had 
two or three North Koreans who were always next to us, and they were fascinated with Steve Jobs, and they wanted to know what was going on with Apple computers, and they knew how to sing um, Let It Be from the then recent movie Frozen. And my, I suppose my experience, because I've been traveling for 45 years now, is that the world is always much more surprising than we think, and it's always much bigger than our ideas of it. And when I'm sitting at home in California, I'll think, oh, I know about Syria or Yemen or Sri Lanka. But the minute I get there, I see I don't know a thing. So I tried to share what I see in my travels with, with the reader. Excellent. Thank you so much, Pico. Um, in your book, you mention the tale of Genji as the central literary text of the land in Japan. Um, for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who may not be familiar with the tales of Genji, uh, can you talk about why it is so important in Japan? Yes, I think the tale of Genji is maybe the Japanese equivalent of Shakespeare for us, which is something that most of us are exposed to in high school, and we know, even if we haven't read it in school, we encounter it. So it's a novel written exactly a thousand years ago in the capital city of Kyoto, and it's written by a woman. And one of the things that's so, it's sometimes called the first novel in the world, and what's so interesting nowadays is to think that um, the novel form in Japan was in some ways created entirely by women. And there was even a kind of special alphabet that was delegated to women. And they made these amazing thousand page fictional constructions out of the alphabet they'd been given. And the men were preoccupied with boring, dry court documents. And the women were writing these tremendous um, books because uh, Lady Murasaki, who's the author of The Tale of Genji, isn't the only one. There were other people in that same small court who were publishing diaries and um, keeping an eye on everyone around. I think if I were to describe some of those books now, I'd say they're a little bit like Jane Austen books that people love and um, see at the cinemas even now. They're often about um, relationships, adultery, courtship, how to make a prudent marriage. The Tale of Genji itself is about Genji, who is a prince, but he's also a kind of Casanova. He's a sort of Warren Beatty of 10th century uh, Kyoto, and it's about all his many love affairs. But these love affairs are conducted in a very exquisite, refined court, where everything is done with a high state of elegance. So um, each time lovers part in the morning, they write beautiful handwritten letters to one another or send each other three-line poems. And um, they, they perfume the paper on which the poems have been written. So when a woman is alone and her lover is departed, suddenly a letter is delivered to her room. She smells it. She sees what kind of color it is. She notices how the paper on which the letter is written speaks for the season right now. It has a maple leaf because this is November when the maple leaves are blazing. And he will send her a a fur-lined poem, which is about how he feels about her, what he wants to share with her, but is also probably drawing on many famous poems that both of them know. So the Japanese court in the 
10th and 11th centuries was this amazingly refined and literary place. And the wonder of being in Japan a thousand years later is they still, in festivals and in certain temples, preserve those customs. And you can go out to a temple next week and see women in 10th century dress with beautiful old pens inscribing ancient poems just as they would, would have done um, in the tale of Genji. So for the Japanese, it's not something just that's remote and part of history, but something they've kept alive. So and I suppose the one other important thing I should say is, I mentioned it early on in my book, um, because in that single work of fiction, the word for impermanence is used more than a thousand times. And of course, all the world lives with impermanence, we're all living with it right now during the virus. But in Japan, impermanence is almost like um, the scripture or the doctrine. It's the sound of the tolling bells. To this day, when you walk around the old capital city of Kyoto, you hear the bells tolling at set points. And my Japanese wife will say, they're saying to us, you don't have so much time. Make the most of this. Enjoy this moment, because who knows what tomorrow will bring. When I walk around my neighborhood um, here in Japan, and as you know, I describe this in my book, I'll hear kids chanting in their classrooms, and the sound of their chants will come out into the streets. And the chant whereby they learn the alphabet, kind of the equivalent of Doremi, maybe, um, that we might learn, is a poem about how cherry blossoms pass, humans pass, nothing lasts forever. So everywhere you turn, even now in Japan, you're being reminded that nothing lasts, which is why everything matters. And in fact, the Japanese famously love the cherry blossoms, which are flowering right now. And the reason they love them is that they flower beautifully for 10 days, and then they're gone. If they were there year-round, I don't think anyone would care about them. But it's exactly the fact that they're so fleeting that makes them so precious. And I think that's how the Japanese think about life. Thank you for that description, Pico, and thank you for pointing out the usage of impermanence in the tale of Genji as someone who... um has highlighted all the different usages of window in the works of Nabokov. I'm a fan of close readings, um, so I'll have to look into that. Um, there's an interesting moment later in this book when you describe the moment, uh, the music of Leonard Cohen. And I love Leonard Cohen. I've seen him in concert. I played his music at my wedding as I was walking down the aisle. Um, in this book, Autumn Light, you write that your wife Hiroko will run out of the room, hands clamped to her ears when Leonard Cohen is playing because he sounds too much like the Buddhist funeral chants she heard as a girl amidst the temples of southern Kyoto. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this, you and your wife's relationship with the music of Leonard Cohen? Yes, I'm thrilled that he has accompanied you and your wife up, up the aisle when you got married. Um, and I will tell you a secret, which I haven't told anybody else, but this book is, um, is dedicated to Leonard Cohen. If you turn to the dedication page, it says to Jikan, which mm. actually is a Japanese word for time, mm. but it was my secret way of acknowledging Leonard Cohen, who was a great friend of mine and, I suppose, teacher, because his name when he was a monk was Jikan. Um, and so I first met Leonard Cohen uh, when he was 61 and he was living for five years as an ordained Zen monk in the high, cold, dark mountains behind Los Angeles. And he'd been my hero ever since I was a teenager. Like you, I, I'd always loved his music. Mm. But it was remarkable to see this 
famous man who'd been a celebrity for 30 years already, who could be doing anything he wanted in the world, giving himself up to this really punishing discipline. Uh, he was for five years in his 60s, scrubbing floors and shoveling snow and cooking for his fellow monks and looking after the very aged 88-year-old Japanese uh, teacher, the head of that community. And so I came to know Leonard a little. Um, I wrote various articles about him and then he would ask me to um, to write liner notes for him and I would, he lives in Los Angeles, lived in Los Angeles, I live some of the time in Santa Barbara, so I'd spend time with him and it was some of the deepest, richest time I've ever spent. You know from having seen him in concert what incredible passion and intimacy and depth he brought to those six years of concerts he gave, starting when he was 73 years old. And I think the reason he brought so much to the listener, and they felt almost it was a holy moment, was that he had spent five years, not long before that, just in prayer and meditation. And so all the time here in our apartment, even though my wife runs out of the room when I put Leonard Cohen on because it sounds so much like Buddhist chanting, yeah, I'm listening to him and I'm thinking about him. And as it turns out, um, while I was writing the book, Autumn Light, was when he released his final album and then 17 days later, um, he died. And so as I was thinking about him here in Japan and writing about impermanence and death and, and even Zen meditation, all his great themes, he was in Los Angeles. Um, he sent me a copy of his final uh, album before it was released and I spent a long time every night in the dark listening to it and I wrote a piece about it. And then I was emailing back and forth with him and I knew he was frail, um, but I didn't know how frail. And at one point I sent him a poem by the great Japanese uh, poet Basho. And it's a very simple haiku, and it just goes, um, autumn evening, this road, nobody on it. Um, which spoke for autumn, but I think it also spoke for what he was writing about in his final songs, about coming close to the end and maybe saying goodbye to life. So I sent that to him, and he sent back an acknowledgement, and I think two weeks later, he was gone. So I include that poem without the story in the book, and in some ways, this book is a secret tribute um, to Leonard Cohen. I've been lucky enough to spend 45 years talking and traveling with the Dalai Lama, but I would say apart from the Dalai Lama, Leonard Cohen is the kindest, wisest, deepest person I've ever met, and all of us who love his music, as you do, sense that from listening to him and from seeing him in concert and from reading the lyrics, I would say in person he was even more impressive. And the most impressive thing about him was he seemed so unimpressed by himself. The first time I met him, I started asking him about his songs and things, as any of us would, and he looked, looked bewildered, as if he didn't even recognize who Leonard Cohen was. You know, he's living under this name Chikan, he was dressed in a tattered black um, monk's robes with wire-rimmed glasses. He'd left Leonard Cohen behind entirely. And maybe the one thing, uh, one other thing I'll tell you, and I apologize for the long answer, but my book is about two things. One is how absence can be even stronger than presence. We all know if we've broken up with somebody or if we've lost somebody to death, suddenly they're everywhere. And they're sometimes even closer to us than we are in life or than they were in their life. And so this book that begins with the death of my father-in-law is about how my father-in-law suddenly seemed to be occupying our apartment after his death even more than 
before. And the second thing it's about is that deep Japanese wisdom that silence is even deeper than speech. And what we share in silence is more intimate and richer and sometimes more eloquent than anything we could say. And that speech tears us apart sometimes. Silence brings us together. And when we're with our loved ones, they're the people we can most be silent with. And I remember... When I um, first visited Leonard Cohen at his little house in Los Angeles, he lived in a very simple house in a beat-up neighborhood with um, his daughter and then later uh, his grand grandson. Um, we, we had lunch together, and he was far and away the most eloquent, um, dazzling writer and speaker I've ever met. I mean, he just spoke in complete sentences, as you probably guessed, beautifully. And um, we, so he talked wonderfully about literature and religion and the journey of the spirit, so many things. And at the end of the lunch, he suddenly picked up two folding chairs and he took them out to his little garden, which looked out on a small residential street in this very uh, forgotten part of L.A. And he put the two chairs down and he invited me to sit next to him. And he sat there and we looked out of this little fire bed and he didn't say a word. And I waited and waited and waited, absolute silence. And then I thought, have I done something wrong? Should something be happening? But I waited and he didn't say anything. And finally, after a few minutes, I, I looked at him and I thought, well, maybe this is a gentle hint. You know, he, he's got other things to do and I should be going home. So I said, I'm really sorry, you must be busy. I, I, should, I should leave now. And he looked at me beseechingly and he said, no, please don't go. And I realized that one of the things he'd learned with the wisdom of being Leonard Cohen was a deepest exchange comes when you share silence. And I was very touched that he invited me, as he invited many of his closest friends, just to sit with him in silence, looking out on this quiet street, not saying a word. And he felt this is the best thing we can exchange. Words are fine, and he was, of course, a master of words. But really, what we need to share is something beyond words. And um, so, in so many ways, this book about autumn and about um, ping pong and about my neighborhood in Japan also has behind it um, very strongly the presence of um, Leonard Cohen. Thank you, Pico. Leonard Cohen and, and the Dalai Lama, it sounds like you keep good company, huh? <laughs> lucky. I'm very lucky to have met both of them. Yes, and as you know, I have um, the Dalai Lama appears in this book also. Uh, and I think one of the most moving times in all my time in Japan was when I traveled with him up to the area that had been devastated by a tsunami uh, in 2011. 18,500 Japanese people um, died in, in that tragedy. And uh, the Dalai Lama felt he had to make a pilgrimage there. Um, and he, he knew that there wasn't much he could offer other than his open heart and his presence. And I'll never forget um, when we drove up to this absolutely devastated fishing village that looked like Hiroshima after the war. There were maybe five or six hundred people gathered behind ropes, and they were excited because they'd heard that this famous Nobel laureate was coming to visit them. And as soon as our car drove up, the Dalai Lama was in one car, I was in a minivan behind it. He got out of his car and he went right over to the people who were standing there behind ropes. And he blessed them and he touched and held their hands and he looked deeply into their eyes and he said, please honor the people that you've lost by working to rebuild your community, just the way Japan rebuilt itself after the war. And please don't think about the past 
because you can't change that. Think about the future, which you can change. And please don't give up heart. You've been through this terrible, unimaginable loss that you're still here and you can honor the people you've lost. So he gave you know, practical, realistic advice of the kind maybe anybody would give. But as he turned around, um, I saw that there was a tear in his eye. And I thought, this is what it is to be a human being, um, to be able to try to offer useful advice to people in need, but also really to feel their loss inside you um, sufficiently to, to, to have a tear in, in your eye. And then the one other thing I remember from that moment is he went into this little neighborhood temple, which was the only thing that had survived the tsunami, and it was sheltered against a, a kind of hillside, maybe 100, 150 people sitting there. And as the villagers gathered to hear what he, said, he would say, he said, well, of course, there's nothing I can say that can bring back the people you've lost or that can really heal your hearts. But as I'm sitting here, the Dalai Lama said, I remember this moment in Lhasa, Tibet, in March 1959, when I was told, um, I have to leave Lhasa that day. And if I don't, I and the whole of Tibet will be destroyed. So no time to say goodbye to my friends, no time to take my little dog. I have to go then and there for 14 days across the highest mountains on earth to arrive in safety and exile in India. And for 60 years now, he's never been back to his homeland. And it was his way of saying that um, loss comes to everybody in different ways and that suffering in some ways is what brings us together. And I think what he says always, which is very relevant to these times, is that from his perspective, the nature of life is suffering. All of us um, probably will get sick. Many of us, if we're lucky, will know old age. All of us will die and will see death. But that doesn't mean we have to be unhappy. Again, it's what they say in Japan. The fact that life is difficult doesn't mean that we have to grieve over every moment. In fact, it means we have to seize the moments to find opportunity and strength and beauty. And so, as you remember, I do squeeze the Dalai Lama into my book there because I think he speaks with such wisdom um, about impermanence, as does Leonard Cohen. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, I have been speaking with Pico Iyer, the author of Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, published by our friends at Vintage Books. It is a fantastic book. It's a fantastically meditative book, a great book to read during these times. A reminder that you can order Autumn Light from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. Pico, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, thank you, Jason. It's really been an honor to talk to somebody who reads so passionately and so carefully. And most of all, I just want to thank you for doing what all of you do all the time, which is sustaining us writers and sustaining us readers with your shop. But also, thank you for sustaining people in this strange moment where they can't get to your shop, but they still love getting books and reading books and hearing from writers so thank you for all you're doing to keep us going and uh, all that you will be doing when the shop opens again Once again, I would like to thank Pico Iyer for joining me. Copies of Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo 
promo code SPACE to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.